This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Hill. I'm Cassie Huff and that hum you can hear in the background is exciting ag tech ideas being discussed. That's because I am live today from one of the largest food and ag tech conferences in the Southern Hemisphere. VOCAG is a place where farmers can share their experiences, startups can pitch their potential, scientists can showcase their discoveries and global business leaders can share their insights. There's about 1,600 people here today at the Adelaide Convention Centre and it is an absolute hive of activity. It's also been a long time coming. It was delayed for for two years due to COVID. It's the first time it's been in Adelaide. It's been in Melbourne for the past two uh, iterations of the event. So it's very exciting to have the event here and a real endorsement for the ag tech work that's been happening in South Australia. So soon you're going to hear from one of the startups pitching to some of the largest agribusiness investors in the world. We'll hear what it takes to get a product from an idea to mainstream use and an area where Australia is making, South Australia, I should say, is making its mark, and that is space tech. That's all coming up in the next half hour or so. But just before we get into it, I just wanted to give you a sense of the speed of investment in this space. Now, John Harvey is the Managing Director of AgriFutures, the organisation that's running this event. He's on stage right now and couldn't speak with me. But here's where he put the Australian ag tech industry at. So in 2019, when we first ran the first Devoke Ag, the total investment in agri-food tech in Australia was about $23 million. In 2020, one year later, that had increased to just under $100 mil. And last year, um, the investment in agri-food tech here in Australia was uh, $550 million. So you can see a rapid increase in the investment from the private sector in some of these technologies. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is huge, that increase. And it's only set to increase further when you see the amount of people here, so many exciting ideas. So we're going to hear more from people who are investing in that space. But I thought we'd first of all set the scene for where South Australian ag tech is up to because the South Australian ag industry is flourishing. Uh, you'll hear soon about the SA Primary Industries and Regions annual scorecard and just how much money agriculture is making for this state. And I've got a lot of futuristic plans to talk about as well, but we might ground truth it first of all with Robin Terry, who is the Senior Ag Tech Extension Officer with PERSA. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks, Cassie. So you met with farmers yesterday to um, discuss what they really want out of ag tech and uh, you work in Perza's ag tech area. Can you explain a bit of the work you're doing and how you're trying to connect farmers with the ag tech that, that the highfalutin high level stuff that we're hearing today? Definitely. We've got a lot of different technologies spread across all of our five demonstration farms across the state. So they're ranging from up on the Air Peninsula, Loxton, Turret Field, Loxton and what I like to call our crown jewel down Struan and Kybibolite. There's a lot of different technologies across all of those different industries and they're all looking at reducing costs on farm, increasing revenue on farm and really importantly is reducing risks on farm as well. 
So what do farmers want? Because there's a lot of investment, it seems, at this event at least, in the supply chain and the consumer end of the, the conference. How is this investment, this huge $500 million or whatever was mentioned there, how is that actually getting to the ground, the people who are producing the food and the fibre? Yeah, producers really need technology that is going to be fit for purpose on farm. It's going to be fit for purpose in their environment and it's going to give them those decisions, those easy-to-make decisions very quickly producers they are time poor they need those decisions from the technology really really fast and that's where it comes down to the dashboards of the technology as well need to all seamlessly integrate so that they can pull the 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 data out and actually get those insights very very quickly and not just not just a, a whole heap of data with not um, not being able to make those decisions from it which is is really really critical Mark Allison spoke this morning. He is with Elders. He runs Elders, the managing director. And he made a comment that I think resonates quite a lot with the work that you're doing, and that is that ag tech doesn't solve problems on its own. How does PERSA work with that concept? Oh, I 100% definitely agree. We need to be looking at what the challenges are on farm and then looking at what technologies can be developed to that. A lot of the time we do see technologies developed and then they're trying to find the challenge to fit on farm, and which is where it's just not gelling with producers and it's just not being fit for purpose for what they need. There is a space for that, though, because you might, it might be addressing something that may be in 10 years' time. So, so where do you get that balance between the stuff that can be done now and the stuff that may lay the groundwork for something in 10, 15 years? I think there's two ways to think about what the technology is now, what it needs to be doing now and giving to producers now and then what are we looking at in 30, 50 years time? What technologies are producers going to need? And this is why the Vocag conference is so important is because it's going to allow us that space to really think about what is the future of the technology needs in the industry and that's where this conference is bringing together the technology suppliers as well as the producers. Well, I wanted to start with someone a bit practical because we're going to get into some uh, rather out there ideas in the program. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no, perfect. Thanks for having us, Cassie. That was Robin Terry, the Senior Ag Tech Extension Officer with PERSA speaking there. Now, I mentioned there in the introduction just how valuable agriculture is to this state. And despite a number of challenges faced by nearly all of South Australia's primary industry sectors, the state has come up on top with uh, a record-breaking last 12 months. Today's release of the primary industry scorecard shows a revenue of $17.3 billion in 2021-22. That's an increase of 12% and accounting for 51% of the state's merchandise exports. So there is a lot that uh, this state relies on when it comes to agriculture. Minister for Primary Industries Claire Scriven says it's a really exciting time for primary industries in South Australia. We've seen that we now have Revenue is $17.3 billion in 2021-22 in terms of our primary industries and agribusinesses. Now, that's an increase of 12%, so that's really considerable. And it does show how resilient our primary industries and agribusinesses are because, of course, there's been a lot of uh, challenges over the last couple of years, uh, including you know, COVID, extreme weather, the floods, the bushfires, uh, the Ukraine situation, as well as tensions with Chinese uh, trade 
uh, situation. So uh, it really is an excellent result, and I think it reflects uh, you know, the real strength, particularly of uh, field crops and livestock uh, for for that particular year, uh, because those revenues are up 23% to $5.6 billion. So it's an excellent result for South Australia and an excellent result for our primary producers. You mentioned there all those challenges that primary uh, the primary industries uh, sector has faced, and there has been a, a number of them. What do you think it is that, that South Australians have been able to come out of those and, and still be on top? Look, I think there's a, a couple of things. Um, a big part of it is simply the, the strength and resilience of our primary industry sector. It remains absolutely critical to our, our state economy. And uh, you know, the people in it are just you know, so dedicated to the sector, which I think really does make a difference when there are those challenges being faced. Secondly, some of the things, of course, are beyond our control. For example, you know, the issues with Ukraine and Russia. But because of that particular issue, it does mean that grain prices have increased considerably uh, and that has been a strong contributor to the outcome that we have had that is reported in the scorecard that we've released today. What has this growth resulted on in terms of flow-on effects? So we know that when our um, regional industries do well, then the whole state economy does well. And when primary producers are doing well, that has a big flow-on effect to the local regional communities because, of course, most of these industries are regionally based. Uh, we know that if um, farmers are spending in their, their local stores, if they're ordering vehicles through their local dealership, all of that throws, uh, flows through to the local economy and so it's a, it's a positive thing all round. Uh, we know also, of course, that there's you know greater involvement in good times in other community events, uh, whether it's... Uh, uh, you know, whether it's even the schools and things like that uh, and the kinds of involvement that uh, primary users will have in their local communities, again, is something that's really positive uh, throughout, uh, throughout the region. When it comes to overseas exports, what does this scorecard mean in terms of, of what South Australia is, is sending overseas? So uh, look, it's been uh, you know, improvements in nearly all of our, our sectors. Uh, the one exception, of course, is wine, but I think everyone was expecting that given the, you know, the, the reduced overseas exports to China. So overall, those are down uh, 16% for wine for, uh, for that particular year. But we did see, of course, despite red grapes going down, um, there is an increase in price for white grapes. So uh, it is a little bit of a mixture because of the different the different issues facing different parts of those sectors. Um, but, you know, grains are having a record yield as well as uh, record prices or near record prices. Uh, and, uh, you know, our livestock is also doing very, very well. Can you see this continuing, Minister? We are hopeful that it, it will continue. There is still you know, high international demand and we've had very, very good uh, weather on the whole this year. Floods notwithstanding, of course. But uh, we are optimistic that uh, things will continue in this really, really positive way. And it is a scorecard. What what score would you would you give it? <laughs> oh, look, I don't think um, I'm not sure that it's for me to do. I think uh, the primary producers know best how they're going, and they're the ones who might perhaps do that. Uh, but you know, I'm having constant conversations, of course, uh, throughout the state with our primary producers and, and other businesses. Uh, and there certainly is, on the whole, uh, a very positive outlook. Uh, of course, we do need to continue you know, advocating to our federal counterparts to uh, hopefully continue the good work they've started with resolving the situation with China so that um, our wine industry can uh, have a, a bigger rate of recovery. Um, but you know, most of the other sectors are doing very, very well. Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, speaking with Brooke Nindorf there about the scorecard. It is 15 minutes past, or 16 minutes past 12.
You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Great to have your company here at the Evoke Ag Conference at the Adelaide Convention Centre. Now, one of the big things that this conference is great for is bringing money to the people who are producing things. And last night, five Australian companies pitched their idea to venture capital investors in the US and Europe, worth some $450 billion. That is not small change. There were uh, The range of topics were uh, a lot of protein, plant protein startups. There was a robotics company. Uh, there was a company that uses high concentrations of oxygen gas to increase plant growth and yield. And uh, another topic looking at, at uh, measuring sustainability targets. So a fair range of topics, but today I'm going to catch up with Roger Drew, who was one of the people pitching to these investors last night. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you, Cassie? I'm well, thank you. So you are with 8th Day, Day Foods. Can you tell me a little bit about what you produce? Okay, we're um, producing an alternative protein, but endeavouring to do that in a way that is um, it honours the pulses and the grains that we grow here in Australia. And so not overly processing them, but being able to make them into a, um, a ready-to-cook protein. So there's quite a lot of lot going on in this space. Is it getting crowded, this plant protein space? Uh, it's a little bit like a Formula One race. It's very crowded and quite scary at the moment because I think we're still working out where this is going to settle um, in the long term. How are you different? We're different in the sense that um, we as I say, honour what's been grown by Australian farmers. So rather than over-processing them or adding too many other ingredients, we just use one or two ingredients, um, being Australian pulses, to um, then use fermentation to produce a product that is nice and clean, labelled for the consumer. And you're working largely with lupins. Now, when I think of lupins, I think of feeding sheep in a drought, to be honest. How are they working as a human food? Absolutely. I've done that feeding sheep in, in a drought before. Um, they're actually ideally suited for human consumption and I think for the last 20 years people in South Australia, Western Australia especially, have been looking for the right application for lupins in the human food um, area. And what we've discovered is that by using fermentation we're able to do that really effectively and to produce a product that um, is able to use the nutritional aspect that um, lupins brings. So what was it like pitching to people, like I think it's uh, Victor Friedman, people worth in total $450 billion? <laughs> I was actually sitting next to Victor, so um, we'd had lots of nice conversations beforehand. Um, standing in front of a group like that is very daunting, um, but I think it gave us the opportunity to share, a sto share our story and our, um, our aspirations to a group of people who can actually make that happen rather than just saying, that's a really nice thing, see you later. They're actually the people who are able to invest and literally to make it a reality. So did you get the money? We're working on it. Because <laughs> it wasn't really a competition. You literally were just pitching and seeing how it goes. Exactly. The five of us who were pitching got together beforehand and we said, do you know what, we're not actually in competition. We're all in this together. And the people who are in the room are actually cheering us on. And so we'll be doing this as a collective. Well, it sounds uh, like a wonderful venture. It's certainly a space where a lot is happening at the moment. We're going to have a little bit more on alternative proteins as well. So thank you so much for joining me and good luck with your, your uh, capital raising that you're trying to do. Hopefully uh, you'll be able to use some South Australian lupins. I think you're only using Victorian and New South Wales lupins at the moment. Absolutely, but we'll have a look out for the South Australian ones. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks so much for that. That was Roger Drew from 8th Day Foods speaking there. Now, he is one of the people who was pitching to the venture capital investors uh, last night. But now we get to hear from a couple of those people who were actually in the room about what they are looking for from someone like Roger, 
who was uh, pitching last night. I'm joined by Adam Anders, who is the managing partner and co-founder of Antera Capital, and Matthew Pryor, who is the co-founder and managing director of Tenacious Ventures. Good afternoon. Good day, Cassie. So uh, I'll start with you, Adam. You uh, grew up on a South Australian farm, but now you are working in venture capital. How did you make that transition? Wow. Um, It it began with uh, being lucky enough to study in England. From that point, I discovered a broader world, got involved in a fintech startup. That didn't change much for food and agriculture, but it, it opened my eyes to this industry. And after a few years around venture capital and faster moving tech, it felt like a gorgeous opportunity to take those learnings and apply them back to where it all started, food and agriculture. So are you purely based in this space now? or do you Solely invest in- investing in technologies that will make our food system safer, more secure and more sustainable. Um, originally we started the fund in Amsterdam, but it's our offices in Boston. And I, I love being home in Adelaide again now. I would love to also be able to do more investments in Australia where Matt's focused. And it will bring Matthew Pryor into the conversation. We've chatted before at a few ag yeah. event, events. Good afternoon. Hey, hey. So w- w- what did you make of the uh, ideas that were pitched to you last night? You had a couple of plant protein uh, groups. You had robotics, um, some agri-tech, some sustainability targets. Quite a broad range of things. What, what did you make of the ideas that were coming to you last night? Uh, well, the most exciting thing is just to see them. I mean, it wasn't a long time ago when, you know, there wasn't even a place where those companies could come and present their ideas. So I think it was fantastic to have an entire event dedicated to, you know, largely Australian-originated innovators, some amazing solutions, some fantastic founders, but a lot of it a function of this agri-tech ecosystem that we've now created and we can see it working. And that was my biggest takeaway was just how far we've come um, you know, in a kind of short five years Space. or so. And uh, I think we had a, a grab before from uh, John Harvey saying in about three years it's gone from 20 billion, million to, to 500 million, the, yep. the ag tech space. That's a massive increase in, in two or three years. What is driving that in Australia? Well, you can't eat software, right? We, we, we have to keep investing in, in making our food systems um, more productive, more profitable for farmers, more sustainable, you know, and and also no one could not remember all the things that have happened in between those times. And a lot of those things have really focused people's attention on our agri-food supply chains and the degree to which they're fragile or resilient um, to, you know, things we used to rely on. And Australia happens to be very good uh, at innovative agriculture and it's a great place to be investing. It's an area that I find very exciting. You're largely working in the Australian investment space, which yep. is why it was interesting to bring in Adam Anders to this conversation as well. Where does Australia sit in the global agri-tech evolution? So first of all, Australia generally doesn't have a very mature venture capital industry. Our, our superannuation in, uh, sector is extraordinary. Then its deployment into private equity internationally was exceptional and quite profitable for Australian super. And somewhere investment in local VC Uh, wasn't respected, didn't get the backing. And so it's left, therefore, the subset of VC that is food and agriculture also behind. On the tailwind side, we're dealing with a different growing condition from a lot of the uh, original seeds that we received a few, few, or a couple hundred years ago. And Australians have proven to be incredibly resilient and innovative in how we farm. And Syro has been amazing. And so we see great technology coming from here, but an immature venture market is how I would summarise it. 
How does that then affect uh, the ideas? Are there the ideas and they're just not getting funded or is it actually even stifling the flow of ideas? Um, it perhaps start, well, the flow of ideas out of uh, things like the Waits Institute locally, Syro, that's exceptional. It's how it then gets commercialised. So it might make it into the hand of corporates or if it does make it into the hands of startups, often those startups move to commercialise in America very quickly where they've got an ecosystem that will support an early stage startup. We've invested in a couple of technologies that came from Australia that are being commercialised in the US and it wouldn't surprise me if several of Matt's portfolio um, head to the US or Europe early in their uh, commercialization phase. Are you seeing that? Yeah, no? definitely. I'm one of it, one of our companies just flipped up, they call it, flipping up to, to become a US-owned entity. I mean, it is a natural evolution, but I think... A bigger well, market, you've got yeah, bigger market. million people yeah, to 25. But also probably a more mature capital market, I would say. Um, and, you know, Adam's absolutely right. We need more of our superannuation money going into Australian venture and in particular in agri-food line investing. And that will help solve that problem because t they tend to run out earlier. And so to get those bigger checks to make that next big growth move... They really have to source that capital elsewhere, and unfortunately that sees them leaving our shores before they really need to from a kind of customer growth point of view. And you mentioned, um, Adam, that Australia has a slightly unique perspective. It's got a different growing conditions perhaps here. Is there anywhere in particular the Australian uh, venture capital is, is focusing or perhaps ideas are coming through that are, are unique or Australia has an advantage in? Well, definitely uh, climate adaptive agriculture. I mean, it's a, it, the climate change is a global phenomenon, massive problem. We've been growing in arid conditions from the get-go, um, often without the right tools, uh, or at least not what the rule book said as things came from Europe. Um, and so uh, that is a huge advantage. And that's from everything from the genetics to the uh, system of farming to the inputs that are selected and a lot of the research that's gone into it. So that is a massive trend and vitally important area and a spot where Australia has a competitive advantage. We have to get to weather but if you had one piece of advice to give to the Australian companies that pitched to you last night and perhaps the ones who would love to pitch to you, what would be each of your one piece of advice to them when they're trying to get their, their startup capital, their venture capital? Adam, oh Matthew, we'll start Well, um, know where the money is. A lot of people still get stuck on trying too hard to throw a technology at a problem without really knowing who the beneficiary is and therefore who's going to pay for their solution and mine would be yeah, a simple customer value proposition if that is the farmer then make it clear make it a clear ROI and um, and then communicate it in a simple manner because that cut through is what we see a lot of technologies that are out there trying to find their application or the solution let's start by actually giving the customer something meaningful from day one I would love to keep chatting. It's very interesting. But thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate your interest, Cassie. Thank Adam you very much for having us, Cassie. Sorry to interrupt. Matthew Pride. No, you're fine. You're fine. And we'll head across to the weather now to find out just how hot it is going to get. I'm joined by Mark Analek from the Weather Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. And yes, we are expecting a very hot week ahead and there's been it's been well publicised and we're not expecting any changes there. So uh, at the moment, still very hot across the north and west of the state and we do have a heatwave warning out for um, most of most of the state, uh, including an extreme heat warning, a heatwave warning for the west coast and lower air peninsula districts with severe heatwave warnings for pretty much every other district uh, except the the southeast um, in, the, in the coming days but look very hot conditions are forecast we are expecting a change to come through um, during friday 
Uh, so a thundery change will move across the state during Friday. Following in behind that, we can expect uh, cooler um, southerly airstream bringing some relief to this uh, extreme weather. So for today, very hot, as I said. Um, looking ahead to tomorrow, we see that the hottest weather move down over Air Peninsula and then into Thursday we see it pretty much the hottest day across the state and, and, the, and those very hot temperatures extend to the, to the southeast. Freshening northerly winds as well. So we'll see increased likelihood of uh, fire da extreme fire danger ratings um, and we need to sort of keep an eye out for, for any, any fire weather warnings that may come out in the coming days. But uh, all in all, still very hot conditions across the state expected uh, right through to at least Friday. Um, that, that thundery change is expected to bring some rainfall. It's a bit patchy at this stage and the timing of that change is, is quite variable so we'll have a bit more on that tomorrow hopefully um, but at this stage we'll see a few millimetres of rainfall with that change uh, Friday into Saturday, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Mark Analak there with the latest in the weather. And to the far west of New South Wales, the upper western is going to be mostly sunny tomorrow. Slight chance of a shower in the southeast in the afternoon and evening. Could be a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening as well, overnight getting down to 20 to 25 degrees. The daytime temperatures, though, reaching the mid to high 30s. The lower western will be mostly sunny. There's a slight chance of a shower in the far east there as well. Again, a thunderstorm in the evening, getting down to 17 to 26 overnight but reaching 33 to 39 degrees. So rather warm out there in the far west. We've got more to come from Evoke Ag. So much technology to talk about as we approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, welcome to the program. If you're just joining me, it's great to have your company. I'm live from the Evoke Ag Conference at the Adelaide Convention Centre. We're about 1,600 people who are interested in all things ag tech, from space tech to plant proteins to sustainability measurements. It's all happening here over the next two days. And soon we'll be talking about uh, something that I think a lot of you are quite interested in, and that is milk and milk alternatives. It's, uh, it can get a lot of people hot under the collar, but are they actually in competition with one another? We'll discuss that in the next half hour. And South Australia is really becoming the hub of space tech in this country, and we'll see where that is heading in the next half hour as well. But first, we need to find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the South Australian Liberal Party has announced it will not be supporting the new bill to allow an Indigenous voice to state parliament. The opposition's Josh Teague says the new bill is defective in substance. He says the government has not been unifying in the course of legislating in the area. A member of the South Australian branch of a national socialist group found in possession of a small explosive, weapons and extremist material will serve at least 19 months on home detention. 34-year-old Patrick Patmore was this morning given a three-year and two-month sentence with a non-parole period of 19 months for six crimes, including taking steps to manufacture an explosive. District Court Judge Michael Burnett said there was no evidence Patmore was planning to take any action and accepted that he had a curiosity with building bombs and weapons as well as extremist ideologies. 
And a South Australian Afghanistan veteran may lose his government-provided support dog after arguing with the Department of Veterans Affairs about her care. Former battery captain David Peterson says he needs to travel overseas for work and is unable to take his black Labrador Amelia due to quarantine rules. He asked the Department of Veterans Affairs to pay for the specialised care that a support dog needs, but the department says it will only pay for kennel costs if the veteran is hospitalised. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt uh, Coleman there with your latest in news headlines. Now, I'm at the Evoke Ag Conference. It's just broken for lunch, so that hum you can hear in the background is lots of people discussing their fantastic ag tech ideas while also getting a bit of a bite to eat. And I'll tell you what, I think an ice cream right now would be a pretty good idea. It is very hot out there across South Australia, and there's not going to be much relief overnight for the next couple of nights either. So I think I'll definitely be uh, indulging in some ice cream. Now, the ice cream that I get will be cow's milk ice cream, I must admit. But we're here to talk about the different types of milk that you can access. So we're going to start with uh, Michael Hampson, who is the CEO of Norco Cooperative, which is a dairy company in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And I also have with me uh, the co-founder and CEO of Eden Brew, which is a, an animal-free precision fermented milk partnership that is also working with the CSI and Norco. Uh, Jim Fader, good afternoon. Great, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So we'll, we'll start with uh, Michael. Uh, so you, uh, Norco has, is well known for producing milk. Uh, how do you actually um, view the, the start, the, not just the alternative milks, the, the plant-based milks, but perhaps this idea around actually milk that's being created? Well, certainly. I mean, Norco is a 100% farmer-owned cooperative, and we're very proud of the, the, the milk that, we, that our farmers make and, and bottle for us, and they'll always continue to do that. I think what we do see, though, is that the, there's an area of the market that we're not addressing. So 40% of our customers not only pick up a, a Norco-branded bottle of milk, but they'll pick up something else, whether that's for someone else in the family or for a visitor to, to, to come along. And currently, we actually can't capture that value for our farmers. And what, we want, what we're doing with our partnership with Eden Brew is capturing that part of the segment and then being able to provide that value back to our farmers via our shareholding and investment in the, uh, in the, the high-tech startup Eden Brew. Okay, so perhaps we might go to uh, Jim Fader now, who is with Eden Brew. Can you explain what is, because you're not plant-based, are you? What is Eden Brew? Yeah, we're actually a precision fermented product. So we use that very natural process of fermentation, uh, a little bit like the way beers brewed, where you use yeast to make alcohol to make a drink. We're using yeast to actually brew the dairy proteins that you find in milk. We purify them out, and then we add all the other ingredients in, and voila, you've got yourself milk, but just without the cow. So you, but you already take milk from, you start with a cow's milk? No, we start with yeast and we run a fermentation of brewery process and that yeast will, will excrete the, uh, the dairy proteins and they're, they're nature identical amino acid sequences so they're, they're basically the same as the proteins you find in milk and so just like in the cow when they then form by grabbing calcium and grabbing each other and forming what's called this casein micelle, we brew these proteins, we combine them with the nutrition that you find in milk to repeat that process that happens inside the cow and um, you're almost all the way there to milk at that point. So one of the arguments made for um, non-dairy based milks is that well at least it's still farming if you're drinking soy milk or your almond milk or oat milk at least there's still a farming element in there but really you've removed the farmer altogether. Yeah well this is quite a um, 
uh, I'd call it a resource savvy way of going about it. There's a lot less water used than, for example, almond milk. You use up to 6,000 litres of water to make one litre of milk. Um, Edinburgh uses 5.7 litres of water. So um, this is about augmenting supply as over the next 30 years, diet is going to change around the planet. Um, and we need to scale the amount of food that we make around the world by at least 50%. Uh, so we need smart ways of augmenting existing supply to meet that demand. And just how scalable is this? How much milk can you produce from your fermenting process? Uh, it's very, very scalable. So you just run really large breweries and you make those protein. And from there, we ship those protein to Norco who combine it with the other ingredients and run it down their bottling plant as if it was raw milk collected from the dairy. Uh, so we're going to leverage the existing assets, the, the trucks, the cheesemakers, um, all of the, 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 the skills in the dairy industry to bring this product to life. And how widely used is this technology? Is anyone else doing it in Australia or overseas? Uh, it's very much an emerging technology in dairy at the moment, but it's a very widely used technology around the world. Um, closest to home would be rennet uh, in cheese. Whenever you're eating cheese, it's got rennet in it. That's made using precision fermentation. But most of the manufacturing um, or the, the use of fermentation in manufacturing is done to make um, high-care drugs in the pharmaceutical industry. And do you... Um you, you, as I was saying before, you mean the, you've got uh, the, the cow-produced milk or you've got the plant-produced alternative milks. And how palatable are you finding this, I guess, grown milk is to the consumer? Uh, look, we, we all our research, because we're pre-market, um, we're about a year away from launching, all our research says that there's a, uh, a really high appetite to try the product. There are two main reasons why people buy dairy. That's the sensory and the nutrition that milk delivers. And there are three, ra three reasons why someone may avoid, so drink a plant-based milk, and that's uh, an allergy or concern about the environment or animal welfare. So we, we tick the two reasons why and the three reasons why not, and we create this whole new category. And what market are you actually targeting? Are you targeting the dairy market or the alternative dairy market? So we'll appeal to both. Um, what we think is that there's a real role to have both in the fridge door. So we see this as an absolute complement to what Norco do, uh, and we see ourselves as the non-dairy division of Norco. <laughs> well, I'll bring in uh, Michael Hampson from Norco. What was it about Eden Brew that made you think we, we could bring these guys on? Well, certainly we, we saw it as a part of the market that we weren't able to capture for our farmers. So. You know, how Are your farmers worried, though? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, as a CEO of a, of a dairy cooperative, taking a, a proposal to a board of six farmers that we're going to get involved in, in this, um, you know, I'd say that the majority of our members instantly got on board with it and thought, wow, what a masterstroke. I mean, we're actually making money out of these people that aren't wanting to buy our product. I mean, that sounds great. And, you know, we can sheet that back to the farm, of course, being a cooperative. You know, there's certainly some which were, well, I don't really understand that, um, what's actually going on, and with further, with further understanding of where we wanted to position the product and where, where that looks, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot more realisation about the benefits that, that could bring our cooperative, which again goes back to our farmers. But I'm sure there's some that we won't be able to change their views, um, but hopefully over the fullness of time and the value that we can then show in the Eden Brew organisation and what that, that means for Norco and how we can then bring that value back to our cooperative and our members, that over the fullness of time that they'll see that this has been a, this has been a good partnership between Norco and Eden Brew that will provide outstanding value for them over the longer term. And how does it taste? 
Look, it's it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> it is. I mean, look. I mean, I'm a middle. Does it I'm, taste like milk? I'm a, I'm, I'm going to be a cow's milk drinker forever. But um, but you know, certainly certainly the product is very good. And if you had um, if you backed it up against any of the, the plant based um, products on the market, you, you wouldn't buy them again. If you if you if flavour and nutritional value is was something that you're you're interested in and you. You didn't want to buy dairy for whatever reason that is, not that I have those reasons, but other people I respect do, then you'd want to buy this product. And what about from a, a texture point of view? Does it does it feel like you're drinking milk? It does. Like it's There's certainly a lot of work that, that's gone into the, the whole texture and, and sensory experience of, of drinking the milk. So, and, and there's still more work to do as we further and further refine it. But as, as we move forward with, with further iterations, we, we think that this product is going to be certainly a leading-edge product for, to, to service a particular point in the market, which we can't address at the moment. I'm sort of imagining beer-flavoured milk, to be honest. <laughs> is that what it's like? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I believe in a blind taste test. You won't be able to tell the difference. Really? Um, and do you have the different iterations? Like there's full cream milk, there's skim milk, those sorts of things. Can you do that with this? Yeah, we absolutely can. And that's a really good question because we feel that there's an opportunity then to over time curate and get uh, special recipes of milk for different segments of the market. So um, if you want to uh, uh, like avoid osteoporosis, for example, you may have a, a recipe milk that is designed specifically for that. So dairy just nourishes us and it brings so much important nutrition into um, into um, our life and our lifestyle and uh, we want to amplify that. Do you see Australia as the place for this or perhaps countries that don't have millions of hectares that they can put towards agricultural production? So countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, somewhere like that? Yeah, certainly um, countries like Singapore and Hong Kong are, are making a big effort in uh, technologies like this for that exact reason. They're, they're a bit worried about food security and as supply chains, particularly through COVID over the last few years, have been disrupted, if you don't have the food in your backyard, you worry a little bit more. So um, we're definitely seeing that. I think there's a big role in Australia for this because we're co-founded by CSIRO, who've got this incredible rich history of dairy science uh, and, and all things science, to be honest, and they are an incredible founding partner of ours. Um, we think that this relationship between uh, science, dairy uh, and the innovative startup is going to grow uh, an ecosystem of research and development where Australia will be one of the leaders in the world. And if I was to get an Eden Brew ice cream, do you, are you do, branching out to dairy products beyond milk? Yes, we absolutely are. In fact, we'll lead with ice cream this time next year. Okay, well, the weather is ready for you here in Adelaide <laughs> um, for, for, for people to try ice cream. Well, it sounds fascinating, and I love the idea of, because dairy farmers haven't always embraced the um, milk alternatives, the, the plant-based uh, dairy products that are out there. So to see a company coming together I think is a really interesting initiative and I'll, I'll be interested to see how it goes going forward. But uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you for your time today. Thank, Thank you so much. Jesse. That was uh, Jim Fader, who is the co-founder of Eden Brew, and uh, Michael Hampson, the CEO of Norco, which is a farmer cooperative, dairy cooperative in northern New South Wales. Uh, fascinating that they can produce me. I guess it's, it's like the, uh, the difference between the plant-based protein products uh, versus the, the actual cell-based grown meat. Uh, they're doing it in dairy as well. So it uh, be interesting to see where that goes. They haven't actually launched yet, but we will uh, see just how palatable the idea of uh, fermented milk is. Uh, I'm Cassie Huff. You're listening to the Country Hour live from Evoke Ag. It is 17 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Where it is lunchtime here at the event. You can hear a lot of people in the background now. There were not this many people around when we started, but uh, it seems we're in quite a popular spot in the Adelaide Convention Centre. We were talking about uh, a product there that has come about from lots of research and development, and perhaps this sort of created uh, product is something that might be useful in space. Now, South Australia is really making a name for itself as the centre of the space technology in Australia. The space agency has been built here and the Wake Campus also has dedicated a lot of uh, energy into a lot of space-based technologies now and it's something that is going to come up a lot in this conference. So I thought we'd catch up with two of the people who are leading in this area. We have uh, Professor Matthew Gilliham, who has been on the program before. He's the director of the Weight Research Institute at the University of Adelaide. Good afternoon. Great speech to you again, Cassie. Thank you. And we're also joined by uh, Scott Amex, who is from the US. He's the managing partner of Astor Perkins, and he more works in the money side of this uh, looking at uh, deep tech and sustainability and um, the mavericks who are trying to, to solve some of the hardest problems facing uh, humanity on Earth and in space. Good afternoon. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank You're you. Welcome. So you were talking a lot about mavericks and about what is needed to make space technology work. How do you see ag tech working in that area? Yeah, I think uh, what I would say is there's a lot of um, technologies that have come from the likes of DARPA, DOD, from NASA. And we pretty much have to just simply look around and everything that we touch from phones to even the mics and the radio waves that we're using from electromagnetic spectrum is very much uh, leveraged through some of these government programs. So NASA uh, is very much trailblazing when it comes to space agriculture. And I think it's just starting to inform the kinds of opportunities and enhancements that we can have here on Earth. You're in the business of return on investment. You don't want to invest in something that isn't going to pay. Why is this an area that you are interested in investing in? So where I'm originally from, I'm actually from California. And in central California is a large agricultural industry. But we've been hit hard for a good solid decade or more in terms of drought. And we've kind of tapped out our water tables. And there's a good chance that that industry in that region may not survive. And it's gotten so extreme that some farmers are starting to relocate to Alaska, where Alaska used to be buried in snow. Now it's become actually warm enough that you can actually start to grow produce. So we're starting to see some pretty severe changes throughout the world. Um, and we have to deal with those challenges. It's interesting you say that because the theme of this conference is down to earth and yet a lot of the technology is space-based. So how is this work going to, but will the space work affect the, what's grown on earth and vice versa? How is what's happening here affects what happens in space? Right. Uh, for those listeners on a practical level is, you know, I was just talking to somebody where they just gone SpaceX's Starlink, and prior to that, they didn't have connectivity. So imagine some of the more remote rural um, outbacks where now they can still start to have connectivity, and that opens up new capabilities that they didn't have before. Similarly, whether it's a cattle station or a large, large farm, it's a lot easier to manage aerially. 
So using satellite imagery as an example, because drones are great for specific localized regions, but if you want a big snapshot, so recently, as you know, there's been earthquakes in Syria, in Turkey, for instance, and being able to analyze on a kind of a larger macro level is really the satellites, and that's where things are coming, and it's becoming available. And the access and the cost and the affordability is really the, the game changer for farmers and producers. And you, you haven't spent a lot of time in Australia. Uh, America is, is the big um, driver of a lot of uh, the ag tech um, space. But we were hearing earlier about how Australia is lagging a little in the, a little in the venture capital side of, of ag tech. What do you think Australia needs to do to catch up and allow the world to see some of the unique contributions that, that ag tech in this country can make? Well, actually, I was talking to one of the largest uh, uh, producers uh, in, in Australia, and I was talking to their corporate VC arm, and if anything, I was actually very inspired that there is actually desire to not just innovate, but to lead. And I think if you look at the last couple of years and the output that Australia has had in terms of agriculture, it's significant. It truly is. And I think the need for that is going to only increase because of climate change affecting East Asia, Southeast Asia, and the need for food safety. Um, so if anything, I think that uh, the environment and the localization aspects of Australia is critical because technology without the context means nothing. Absolutely. That's one thing that we're trying to get through as well is the ground truthing of this. You need the, the high-level things because that might be what is relevant in 10, 15 years' time, but you also need stuff that's relevant now, which brings me to Professor Matthew Gilliham, who I've spoken to several times at the Weight Research Institute. There's some cool stuff happening at the Weight campus. Um, it is the, the, I think it's the greatest concentration of ag scientists in the Southern Hemisphere. I'll, I'll turn your microphone on. There's Thank a lot you. of people. We, you actually need a microphone at the moment. We're surrounded by people. Can, what are some of... When we first spoke, your Australian Research Centre grants had only just come through, but now the, the space work that you're doing has actually taken off. What is some of the technology that's really getting some traction at the Way Campus now? That's right. So we were fortunate last November to have an announcement where we have uh, funding for the next seven, eight years to work on an initiative that's called the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence in Plants for Space. And that is really using what Scott was talking about, the lens of space to innovate here on Earth for on Earth sustainability. So absolutely we are linked to NASA, um, one of our partners, through uh, the Artemis mission. So helping to really tackle that massive, that grand challenge uh, of pushing human exploration to places that have never gone before, Mars, so a, a return mission to Mars, so that will take three years. We're not there at the, the point that we can deploy life support systems, particularly nutrition, long distance, remote from Earth, in a completely closed system. So we're really working on that and using that lens, so closed system agriculture, so the ultimate sustainability, if you like. So some of the innovations would be zero waste plants. You know, it's something that we've heard a lot about food waste over many years. Um, but can we cut that out at the source? Can we use every single part of the plant, either for food or for another byproduct? Uh, other things that we're working on are things like producing non-food items in plants. They you know, are great at capturing carbon dioxide, sunlight, combining them into various products. Can we make novel medicines? Uh, can we make recyclable plastics? 
in plants. And this is really going to feed the industries of the future, as you say. I was really interested in something you were saying about how we only use such a small portion of the available nutrients from plants. How will the work you're doing perhaps unleash more of that? Well, so in traditional broadacre uh, agriculture, obviously the, the system is not closed. So you apply a certain amount of nutrients, you always get loss. With, with certain types of farming, like controlled environment, agriculture farming, vertical farming, uh, people might know, also protected cropping, we can apply a fraction of the nutrients. Some of the, some of the nutrients, about 1% of nutrients that we might in the, the open systems. And the same with water, so you can completely recycle the nutrients and keep applying them to the plant and they're not lost. Mm-hmm. Another side of that is unleashing what's in the plant itself. So can we extract, and we heard today at the conference, uh, a number of um, startups that are looking at, uh, and I think one that um, Scott can comment on, that are identifying compounds in the plant that we know we don't use currently. There are thousands of compounds. Plants are, have a high metabolism, metabolism. They can make all kinds of things, and we're only harnessing a fraction of those uh, for, for health, for nutrition, for, for a variety of things. And I think that's going to be a massive area informed by you know, AI. I think Scott can talk about that some more. But I think these are massive growth areas that are really going to push the boundaries in this come. And, and as you mentioned there, you're, you're getting funding from the Australian Research Centre. This is, this is sort of pure research. You are, are working out how things go. But uh, Scott Amex uh, is more interested in, I guess, what's actually going to be viable going forward and uh, the return on investment that comes from that. So where do you see this work being useful um, and used and moving forward when you're looking at space tech and, and technologies and, and how much investment are you putting into the sort of work that's happening at the the, um, the Wake campus that is not, you, no, we don't have people living on Mars at the moment but we could one day so uh, where, where's it going? Yeah, so my response would be that actually as Deep Tech VCs, we are very much an outlier. Most of what I do on a week-to-week basis is reading Nature Publication and other referee journals. And the reason for that is our community, aside from institution investors and other VCs and uh, investors, is very heavily leaning on researchers and scientists and professors because they give us a perspective on what is coming down the pipeline. And we can form uh, informed decisions around pipeline and opportunities if we don't know what's really happening from the research. Now, with that said, on a practical allocation of funding from a VC perspective, you're right. We, there's a very high hurdle before we will consider investing. Um, We're unusual in that we're very engineering and science heavy, but the startups have to show almost a monopolistic power that they have to have market share. So give you a quick example, SpaceX, where many of the other launch companies are struggling to compete with SpaceX. And this was prior to even the Starship becoming viable. And the reason is, there's plenty of demand from customers to send payloads up into space. The issue is pricing. Other launch companies cannot compete with SpaceX at pricing. Once the Starship is in operation, SpaceX will have a sure monopoly 
hands down. And that's the kind of opportunities that we're interested in. It's all fascinating. It's getting rather loud in here. I apologize for how loud it's getting. Um, but I'd love to continue chatting, but I'll let you go. Um, and welcome to Australia and uh, the event. It was lovely hearing your presentation this morning. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you more, uh, Professor Gilliam, about yeah. what's happening at the Wake Campus. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> listening to uh, Kasiyov, I am at the Evoke Ag Conference where lunch seems to have moved almost right on top of us, which is why it is quite noisy at the moment. But uh, we don't have long to go now. We're just going to, to wrap up the program speaking with uh, Michelle Colgrave, who is the CSIRO's Deputy Director of, uh, in, in the, the CSIRO, I should say. Now, she works a lot with the plant proteins and uh, the alternative proteins and, and where this area is going. It's an area that's attracted a lot of interest here at the conference. There were a number of startups that were pitching to venture capitalists along this line, but uh, uh, Michelle Colgrave is perhaps more based in the research side of things. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So... It, it's a pretty exciting time for plant proteins. It seems like it's really exploding at the moment. Can you give me a sense of where plant proteins are at in the market? Yeah, so plant proteins have been around for a little while. In fact, in, if we really go back in history, we, you know, we've been eating plant protein forever, <laughs> you know, so it's really not that new. But I think that what's new about it is how we're formulating them to make products that are, you know, meeting the needs of the consumer and thinking about um, the, the health benefits of those and, and how they can complement or add to our traditional industries and just think about the diversity of products that are really um, coming out with all the new startups in the space. So, yeah, exciting times. Lots of startups in this space. I'm interested, there was a time when plant proteins were seen as the um, competitor to perhaps animal-based proteins. Probably still is an idea that they're at odds with one another. But there's a new player in this space, and that is the cell-grown proteins as well. Is that seen as a competitor to plant-based proteins as well? Is that a new sort of kid on the block, or, or are they complementary? No, look, complementary is the word that I love to use <laughs> because it really is about, a, you know, we've, we've got a growing population. Um, we need to produce more protein for that population, and we need to meet the needs of the consumers. And so it's estimated that we're going to need another 20% protein in the next five or five to seven years. So this is not about, um, you know, competing in markets, about actually addressing the, the nutritional needs of our population. So we need plant protein, we need animal protein, we need agriculture, we need everything. Well, it's interesting you say that because you've got the traditional plant proteins, you've got the plant-based proteins, you've got the insect proteins. Is there anything that's really coming through as the most viable or the most popular or, or which, which part of this market is really perhaps pulling ahead? So I think the interesting thing here at the moment is that um, many of the new technologies haven't necessarily met scale yet to, um, for consumers to be able to try. Um, so that we have plant protein that's been in the market for a number of years now and we've seen massive improvements in terms of the flavour, the texture, the sensory experience, you know, that eating experience. Um, and then we're seeing these new proteins being delivered by uh, technologies like fermentation. So we often call it precision fermentation when you're making specific ingredients. And what they add is they add nutrition, they add flavour, they add functionality um, to really make those products um, meet the mark for consumers. Um, but things like cultivated meat, they're only only available in a few jurisdictions around the world, like Singapore is one of the regions where you could first try these. But, you know, they're not common. Um, you can't walk into your, your retailer and get them off the shelf at the moment. But I think it'll be interesting to see how, what the future brings in that space. 
Well, that's all we have time for, unfortunately. I'd love to keep chatting about it, but uh, I'm sure it won't be the last time we speak about this. Uh, but thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been great to see you at the Evoke Ag Conference. It's been a bit of a theme, these plant-based alternative proteins, so we'll keep talking. Thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. Yeah, Colgrave. thank you. That's all we have time for. It is uh, almost one o'clock. It's time for news. I'm Cassie Huff. Keep up to date with ABC Radio. Local stories. Local news. Local programs. On your radio, on your mobile and online 24-7. Get all the latest with ABC Radio. Anywhere, anytime. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.